1: today. The Bowery Boys, episode 208, Great Hoaxes of Old New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey.
2: Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With an anthology show of sorts, although it's really just two main stories, but... Right, a duo. A duo, a tale of two hoaxes, a couple stories of mischief and chicanery from the early 19th century.
2: Now, Greg, we like a good hoax, right? We like a good practical joke. I
1: love the wool pulled over my eyes on occasion. And what could be funnier than wool from the
2: 1820s and 30s? (laughs) for we're going back to a very specific period in the early 19th century uh, to tell of two hoaxes pulled off on the populace of New York at the time.
1: Now, this isn't to underscore the naivete of New Yorkers, but rather to show how the people who lived here interacted with media and learned how to separate truth from fiction. Sometimes the hard
2: way. (laughs) Sometimes they didn't separate. And first, I will be telling the story of... An implausible plot that was hatched at a downtown market on Grand Street. It's a story, Greg, that's guaranteed to give you
1: separation anxiety. <laughs> well, in the second story, the hoax in question is perpetuated by the media. First of hundreds of possible hoaxes by the media, we could arguably say, and also one that dips into the realm of science. Tom, have you ever read a science article about a new discovery and thought Well, that is completely unbelievable. Oh, all the time. Well, in the case of the New York Sun and his series of articles in 1835, many people did believe the quite unbelievable tales of life from outer space.
2: So kick back and join us as we take you from the
1: market to the moon. In these great hoaxes of old New York. Well, before we tackle the two hoaxes in question, two hoaxes that are from the early 19th century and two Mm -hmm. stories I think we could fairly call them zany tales of New York City history, right? I just want to take a moment to reflect on what perhaps is the most famous hoax ever perpetrated in New York City. Tom, could you take a guess, take a gander at what the most famous hoax might be? Um... I'm going to guess it has something to do with P.T. Barnum. It's an extremely good guess, and he has a host of hoaxes associated Mm -hmm. with him, but it's not Barnum. Obviously, Orson Welles and his War of the Worlds broadcast, that was a pretty big hoax. I would say that was one of the most famous hoaxes in American history, definitely. And we'll get to that maybe at the very end of the show, and that occurred in 1938. But the hoax that I believe is the most famous one is so famous that it actually became an American idiom. It actually entered the American lexicon for meaning gullible or Mm. easily cheated. And Tom, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Uh Ah. Right. So the variation of that phrase, it's actually specifically referring to the Brooklyn Bridge. And yes, believe it or not, since its completion in 1883, more than a few people were actually suckered into thinking they could be sold the Brooklyn Bridge. At the root of this story is one man named George C. Parker, who was a Gilded age confidence man Con man Who played upon The gullibility Of New Yorkers By selling them property That of course He didn't own And Parker would present Very legitimate paperwork Like they were actually Buying this bridge? Well they Not that they could just Take the bridge home with them Or hang a mailbox (laughs) Right With their name on it No they were actually Sold the right To charge tolls On the bridge Oh And he didn't just Sell it once Mr. Parker He sold it Hundreds of times over his career, sometimes twice a week from the opening of the bridge in 1883 until he was arrested in the 1920s and sent to Sing Sing for this uh, little scheme of his.
2: He was probably trying to sell it to other prisoners while he was there. (laughs) Well,
1: I think he actually did try to sell Sing Sing to someone, believe it or not. He actually sold it. For a song, (laughs) probably. For for a song. He sold many landmarks in this method. In fact, my favorite is he frequently sold Grant's tomb, which just seems disrespectful, if you ask me. Who was
2: he selling it to? What did, what did somebody else want to
1: do with Grant's tomb? I, I really, I don't know about Grant's tomb. <laughs> Again, maybe it was admission. It was one of New York's most famous landmarks. Well, to quote one of our favorite authors Tom Luke Sante the author of low life quote the oddity of the thing today is not that there might have been con artists ready to sell the bridge but that there would have been suckers both gullible enough and sufficiently well healed to fall for it
2: right but of course to be fair think of all the think of all the spam we get today you mm-hmm. know and think of all the the modern salesmen on TV who are trying to sell all kinds of things you know everything from medicine to religion I mean there's All kinds of fraud that's
1: going on today. Yeah, it's not that people were necessarily more gullible back then, but it's just that the methods to seeming legitimate in many of these cases were easier to reproduce because they were harder to verify back then.
2: Right, which was completely the case in the story that I'm about to tell. My story takes place in the early 1820s, the spring of 1823 or 1824. Hmm. Historians would they'd later have a hard time really getting the exact date. Uh, but it's a story of a hoax that startled and it really embarrassed uh, some of the most important market sellers in the city. This is the hilariously implausible story of the men who wanted to saw Manhattan
1: in two. Saw Manhattan in two. Like cut it in half, like mm-hmm. a like a magic trick. Well, like a like a woman of. in a box, right? <laughs> like a magician
2: well, Sort of. I mean, it it definitely depends on the audience suspending their disbelief.
1: Okay, but before you pull this one over on Mm -hmm. us, or on Mm -hmm. me, Mm -hmm. let's uh, situate this a little bit. You said 1823 and 1824. It's a very curious period in New York City history. So, lots of big changes around the corner? Well,
2: for starters, New York was the most densely populated city in the United States— Its importance as a trading city, as we've talked about before, was quickly growing, and the city was just wrapping up years of digging and engineering with the construction of the Erie Canal.
1: And that opened 1825, so the year after this story that you're about to tell. That's right,
2: but... Yes, and once it opened, it would absolutely cement the city's position as the country's dominant port, because then it would it would be possible to sail goods up the Hudson to Albany, then glide them along the canal, which connected Albany with Buffalo and into Lake Erie. And from there, goods could move west, and foods and crops in the Midwest, they could now be shipped east much faster and much more cheaply uh, to and through New York. So yes, the Erie canal was hugely transformative.
1: The city is growing. We're almost ready to open the Erie Canal with some wealthy residents and an increasing number of impoverished ones entering and and filling the city.
2: Right. And don't forget that there were health crises and disease outbreaks. Oh, right. Because the early 19th century would see many, many outbreaks of yellow fever that would terrify the city. In 1822, so just a year before our story, a particularly bad outbreak had hit during the summer and... Anyone who could fled the city. Um, they'd relocate to Greenwich Village and farther up the island. So that's the city in the early 1820s. My story involves two main characters, one named John DeVos, who they called Uncle John, and another simply named Lozier. L O Z I E R. Oh, it's a
1: nice name.
2: F- fancy. Well, DeVos, he was a retired butcher. He'd worked in a number of markets around town. It was less clear what Lozier had done, but let's just say. Let's just assume that he was also somehow related to the market and was probably a butcher as well. And we know the story uh, because Uncle John's nephew, Thomas, included it in his celebrated 1862 two-volume book called The Market Book, containing a historical account of the public markets in the city of New York and Brooklyn. So Nephew Thomas
1: wrote a book about the story that you were about to tell, or right, it's
2: included and, in it. And, and wrote it at the New York Historical Society, which hmm. was already founded and was on Second Avenue. So legit. It's, it's an amazing book. It's full of meticulously detailed accounts of all of New York's old markets, how many stalls they had, who rented each stall, and so on and so
1: forth. So is everyone calling him Uncle John, like this is how he goes when he walks down the street?
2: Well, maybe not everybody called him Uncle John, but his nephew, Thomas, who wrote the book, definitely oh. called him <laughs> so, Uncle John.
1: Throughout the whole book, he's called Uncle John. Well,
2: you it's get the per- idea, I mean, reading it, that, yeah, everybody calls him Uncle John. What a very personal count. Anyway, one day in the spring of 1824, Uncle John and Lozier headed into the center market, which was located at Center Street uh, between Baxter and Mulberry. And they pushed their way in past the vegetable sellers and butchers to the back, where a group of guys was hanging out at wooden benches. Oh, you know, just chilling out
1: at the open market, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, people did. You know, like other people who were merchants at the market, Mm -hmm. uh, drivers for the food into the market— Farmers, children running errands, you know, just shooting the breeze. Mm -hmm. And DeVos and Lozier sat down with the crowd, Um, but today they seemed kind of perturbed. Now, Herbert Asbury devoted an entire chapter of his book, All Around the Town, his follow-up to Gangs of New York, to this event. Asbury writes the two were already known as, quote, venerable jokesters, Although they were respected because they were wealthy, retired butchers. And Lozier was the kind of guy, you know, one of these who knows all the answers um, and always seems to have inside information about anything that's being
1: discussed. We all have our own Lozier in our social circles, don't
2: (laughs) we? (laughs) But today was different. They'd been gone from the market for several days, and the other guys had noticed. Here they were today, and they seemed a little distant. They were bothered by something. Uh, they spoke um, with each other in hushed tones as if they needed to convey some really serious information. Hmm. Finally, Lozier looked up and explained to his friends that they had just come from Washington. Mayor Stephen Allen of New York had sent them down as representatives of New York
1: to meet with President what? James Monroe. Wait, so these guys that were just hanging out at the vegetable cellars <laughs> worked for the mayor, and they were like they met with the president? That's kind of an extraordinary coincidence. I'm
2: telling you, Lozier was always involved in things. He he had all the answers. And they explained to the crowd that it, they had been sent because they needed to develop a plan to avert an impending disaster hmm. and there was something unthinkable about to happen to new york so what was it the island was sinking sinking yep sinking <laughs> right into the harbor yeah, there had been so much development and so much activity in the southern section of Manhattan that the land itself just couldn't take it anymore. All these people, all these buildings, all this hubbub of activity, it was sinking the island. <laughs> Think if it sank. Just imagine the horrors if the sinking accelerated and just went underwater Think of the 150,000 people, including those men standing around them.
1: The horror. This sounds like a Michael Bay film. Like, I can probably go across the street and see it at the Cineplex right now. So, well, today, city, yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, we, we, we have these fears. It's a natural disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Global warming.
1: So I can envision at least the terror that they Mm -hmm. might have felt when they heard this. But then, I mean, what do you do about something like that?
2: Well, DeVos and Lozier had a plan. They were experienced engineers, right? Not just butchers. But they knew how to get things done. They'd studied the subject thoroughly and discussed it with the mayor and with the president. And there was only one thing to be done. The sinking part of the island needed to be sawed off. And then turned around in New York Harbor and reattached to Manhattan. What? The part that's... <laughs> well, the part that's sinking now would, would now, once you turned it, it would be relocated in the north and the end of the island would be land that was no longer sinking. So everything would be fine. But,
1: well, I have a lot of questions to these people, oh. right? If I were there and was a little bit more of a pragmatist and, you know, for instance... How do you get started sawing an island? And what proof did they even have that this is, was even happening? I don't, I don't even well, understand no. where the assertion's coming if from. If you
2: stood on the steps of City Hall, and this is something that they had done with Mayor Allen, and looked down Broadway, you'd see that it went straight <laughs> down. It's, the land sank deeper than it used to. This was clearly being caused by all the buildings and by all these new people, these immigrants mm. who had just arrived in the city.
1: Okay, so they're going to cut Manhattan in half and they're going to flip it around. But where where are they going to make this incision? Well, first you of said all? in
2: half, but it's not exactly. Not I mean, okay. yeah, they'd kicked around a few ideas. In the end they decided with the mayor that it made the most sense to saw it off in the very northern end where it had been least developed and was, you know, so it was the highest.
1: Okay. And so then they're going to
2: turn it around how? <laughs> Again, they'd gone through a couple plans. First, they thought that it would be best to use giant ropes and tug the island out from (laughs) from bases on Staten Island and Brooklyn. And they could just pull out the island into the harbor and somehow turn it around. They got a little bit nervous, though, because they thought that they could lose control once they started tugging on it like that. And if there was a big storm or something, the whole island could just get washed
1: out what? to sea. Did they think the whole thing was like a raft? I mean, this sounds like another, it sounds like an Avengers movie at this point. They're moving whole blocks of land that can just be tossed aside. Well, they didn't think it was going to be
2: easy, but they okay. certainly did think that they could move the island. And they settled on a much more straightforward plan. They were going to build giant paddles, okay? And these would be 250 feet long. They'd attach these to the side of the island and using a lot of manpower, they would paddle the island out into the harbor, turn her around and park her back up in the (laughs) opposite direction, reattach, and then, you know, breathe a huge sigh of relief. You know, that
1: was a close one. (laughs) This is... An extraordinary plan, needless to say, and obviously, it sounds like it would need pretty much most of the United States to help with <laughs> help put it into place. Well, right?
2: I mean, in a way, like that was the strength of the plan. That was the beauty of the mm-hmm. story. Sure, it didn't sound plausible. It doesn't sound plausible to you? No, right now. But you know, who cares? Imagine how many people would be needed, and and jobs were becoming increasingly scarce with all these people arriving. You had those who would work the giant 100-foot saws because, uh-huh. you know, you needed people <laughs> to cut the island on the surface. But then you needed people who could go way down below and do the dirty work of cutting, like, the stuff that's way down there. To get back to your question about just, you know, uh-huh. is this a raft? No, you had to you had to really dig deep. And so the people who would be down, way down, cutting the island free at sort of its foundation... Those people would get paid three times as much to do this, to do this work. Job
1: creators here.
2: And then the gangs of the guys to pull these paddles, you know, they needed a hundred guys per paddle. And we haven't even mentioned all the infrastructure, the, the living quarters and the eating quarters. Even the wives of the men would be hired to do cooking and cleaning. Farmers, you know, would be needed to bring animals yeah. uh, for the
1: eating. Just, Just get everyone involved. Thousands of people. <laughs> bring, bring them all in. I mean, this is an extraordinary plan. Did did anyone at this point sort of raise their hand? Were there any red flags that anyone sort of observed at this point well, or anything? Why couldn't
2: it work? Okay, thousands of men were at that moment undertaking another engineering miracle, the Erie Canal, mm-hmm. right? Good same point. time. good point. That had seemed like an impossibility as well. You know, they were building a man-made waterway through some crazy mountainous terrain that was just upstate. New industries all over town. They were using science and engineering to do things that had never, you know, before been thought possible. So why not float Manhattan out and turn it
1: around? I mean, I guess in certain ways, the Erie Canal project is actually more difficult to. to conceive than this particular one.
2: Right. I'm glad to see I'm winning you over. So then you can understand how this became the topic of conversation mm-hmm. at the market. People people just didn't want to be left out of this action. And so Uncle John was in charge of signing men up for weeks at the market. Uncle John brought in his ledger, and they lined up, and he put them in. He and Lozier even devised some physical tests. For the men who wanted to do the dirty work, you know, way down below mm-hmm. to see how long they
1: could hold their breath while they were, you know, pretending to saw. Now it's, now it's, now it's like a reality show all of a sudden. They, should, they could have had a reality show to, like, to cast people for mm, this to particular see who job.
2: Yeah, get voted off the
1: island. This was all in the newspapers. Like, how did they advertise this? Who, how is the story being presented to people? It just well, seems like wait. someone should have called them out at this point, right? Hold on.
2: The okay. newspapers, as you're
1: going to be talking about yeah. in a minute, had yet to really explode
2: and become, okay. you know, the Thing. That so is we're, true. We're talking That's about true. the 1820s. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't really part of the general public's daily life, especially like the working public's daily life. The, the, the newspapers were mostly concerned with wealthy Affairs, and international news business, you know, oh, society, yeah. that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And also, Lozier had told the men that Mayor Allen had asked him to take charge of the whole endeavor because he didn't want to bring it up for political reasons. Mm. So there was a reason <laughs> okay. why the mayor was sort of staying out of this publicly. So, so yeah, the guys who were lining up to get these jobs, they weren't going home and fact checking this story in the newspaper. You know, they, they were getting their news by
1: word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And this was news. Now, let me back up just a a second from something you said a little earlier. Did you say that animals were also involved with this particular plan?
2: Oh, he was giving orders because he's in a market. He was giving orders to butchers and farmers, right? So it wasn't just people who were going to do the physical work. These butchers were already doing pretty well by selling beef and chicken to a limited number of customers who could afford it every week. But Lozier and DeVos, they were going to have a huge order from the beginning, he bragged that they would need 500 cattle, 500 hogs, and 3,000 chickens, because he g- he guaranteed chicken dinners to his workers twice a week. Wow! And chicken dinners on top of everything—this all just is sounding too good to be true. Well, people even started constructing barracks for lodging all the way uptown. They were really serious, and they were they were ready to start sawing. Okay. And? And they were getting impatient with Lozier, who had signed up hundreds of men. These guys were saying, when was this project going to get started? Now I'm going to read a little passage from Thomas DeVoe's actual work oh, himself. okay. Okay. He wrote, quote... He, Lozier, was forced to name a certain day and thought it best to divide them. And on this particular morning, one party were directed to be at the Forks of the Broadway and Bowery near the present Union Park, Union Square, Mm -hmm. and the other portion to be at number one Bowery corner of Spring Street, where a large number of live hogs was expected to be ready in which they were to drive up. Others were to carry provisions, tools, etc., and wagons and carts, and a few wagons were to carry up the wives of several of the workmen who were to do the cooking, washing, and so on for all. The day came, then great numbers presented themselves, but Lozier was nowhere to be found. Soon, however, some of the more knowing ones got hold of the merits of this great job and felt as if they had been handsomely sold." Yet they desired to appear as if they had not engaged in it and began to cast ridicule upon the excited and angry ones. And very soon there were but few who would confess that they had been engaged, quote, to saw the island off. So basically, Lozier and DeVos were no shows. All these men showed up ready to work, hundreds of them in two locations, and there was no Lozier. Did these guys, like, ever show up ever in the city? To explain themselves? According to DeVos, Lozier hung out at a friend's house in Brooklyn for a couple of weeks and let it kind of blow over. And then Lozier showed back up in the market, but now disguised as somebody else and using a different name, perhaps his real name. But yeah, he had pulled one over on
1: hundreds and hundreds of people. Do we know what his designs were? I mean, why exactly did he work all these people up on such an inconceivable project? (laughs) Well, I think he
2: just wanted to have fun. You know, it seems like maybe this is a tall tale that kind of got out of control. And, you know, if you lose control of, of a good story, sometimes it takes on a life of its mm-hmm. own.
1: So some of the newspapers of the day who grabbed at anything outrageous to print, mm-hmm. well, they must have run with the story at the time, right? So that's the curious thing about this
2: story, Greg. I don't mean to take away all of our fun at this moment, <laughs> uh-huh. but it's really hard to find out anything about the story. Let me tell you, because I, there's this, right, which mm-hmm. is the, um, the the market book. The Nephew's, the right? Nephew's this account. This is Thomas' book, the 600-plus page book that he put out. And then every other piece of information that seems available about this book is really just going back to nephew Thomas's account as recounted by his uncle, the jokester, Mm -hmm. John DeVos. Herbert Asbury, in the 1930s, would write all around the town and liberally recount everything, basing (laughs) it, it seems,
1: on the nephew's account as well. So it's an infamous original account that then people keep going back to. But then, right, Edward Rob
2: Ellis in the Epic of New York City, devotes a few pages to sawing off Manhattan Island, and he seems to be quoting that same passage from the nephew's book. And much more recently, in 2001, the author Joel Rose wrote a book called New York Sawed in Half that deals exclusively with this story and also setting it up in its proper historical framework. Very interesting, and he also dives into this question of the authenticity of the story itself. He has some great theories about that that are worth checking out are you saying that he believes that perhaps this story is severed from the truth well it does beg the question you know who's really being taken for a ride here in the first place
1: well speaking of going on a ride in the second half of our show the second hoax will take us on a trip to the moon tom are you ready to go to the moon let's go there after this On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. In the
2: decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles
3: Thank mm-hmm. you. So, Tom, for mm-hmm. a podcast
1: that focuses on New York City history, we have actually gone many other places uh, in, during the duration of the nine years that we've been doing this show. it gone all over the world, and even way back in time, of course. Can you recall the oldest time period well, we've ever talked about? Cleopatra's Needle, probably. Yeah. We went back to ancient Egypt. It, I mean, it doesn't get much further back than that, right? Well, in this story, we're not going to go so far back in time. We're going to lift our feet off the ground and go to outer space. Ooh. Now, Tom, what year did you leave us in again for the last, for the sawing off story? Well, it was 1823 or 1824. He couldn't remember. Well, this story will take place in 1835, so about 11, 12 years after that. And a lot has changed in New York in those 11 or 12 years. The Erie Canal opened, creating these vast opportunities for wealth. In trading with the interior of this growing United States, of course, that sparked more growth in New York.
2: Right. There was, a, there was a whole new wealthy class in New York. The the rich merchants and the people who were working the import and export business that was suddenly now booming in the city.
1: And they were living north of Washington Square, like these new right. hot neighborhoods were opening? Until
2: they moved north,
1: you know, <laughs> Union Square and Gramercy Park. Yeah, right, right. Also during this time, speaking of Washington Square, mm-hmm. um, the University of the City of New York opened as today's NYU. And a young budding empresario by the name of Phineas T. Barnum, Arrived in New York You had mentioned him At the beginning of the show Right So when did he get to New York? In 1834 So just a year before The story that I'm about to tell Okay So he's only gearing up To delight and confuse New Yorkers With a bunch of tricks So the world is changing The horizons are expanding This is an extraordinary time To be alive which is perhaps why audiences greeted so rapturously the following series of articles that ran in the New York Sun on August of 1835. These were reportedly reprinted from the Edinburgh Current, written by Dr. Andrew Grant, dictating words of the great astronomer, Sir John Herschel. So,
2: so the Sun is reprinting articles from a Scottish newspaper. Correct.
1: In these series of articles, Herschel describes a series of discoveries that he's observed from a new hydro-oxygen telescope of amazing power. This telescope was 24 feet long, and keep in mind that 1835 were Mm -hmm. only about 160 years after the very first telescope was invented by Isaac Newton. So it's not that advanced, so news about telescopes would have been very exciting.
2: So, he used this new fancy
1: telescope. Mm -hmm. Uh, What what did he find? What did he see? Well, for the first time ever, man was finally able to make very, very clear sense of the surface of the moon, and what he saw, Tom, will shock you. (laughs) What did he see? Well, over a series of six articles reprinted in the New York Sun in August of 1835, These articles unfurled Herschel's amazing discoveries, breathtaking revelations that the moon had a rich stone surface covered in red, poppy-like flowers, flamboyant geological deformities unlike anything seen on Earth. A fluorescent landscape of mountains and volcanoes coated in all sorts of variety of flora over three dozen species of trees on the moon.
2: The moon was richly covered in in plants and and in poppies.
1: Yeah, verdant life, Tom, verdant life. But there was something else on the moon, Tom, something that's very similar to that of the Earth. That would be sentient life, even more exotic than that found on planet Earth. For instance, there was the famous moon bison. Moon bison. (laughs) Moon bison. Similar to the ones that were on the planet Earth, who actually at that very moment were being slaughtered in large numbers in the American West, but bison. Moon bison. There was some kind of goat creature that Sir Uh Herschel discovered that had a blue coat and a single horn, like a unicorn. There were pelicans and heron-like birds and strange living creatures and spherical globs that's rolled around on the beach of many of the rivers that, of course, we know are on the moon.
2: But this is incredible. And he could see all of this through this magnificent
1: hydro-oxygenated
2: uh, <laughs> telescope? telescope?
1: Yeah, and it, he would just kept moving it around the surface. And uh-huh. so he would turn it again and see beavers who walked on two feet and lived in huts and had the ability to start and cultivate fire. The most extraordinary discovery was laid bare to the masses in New York on Friday of August 28th, 1835. I need to read a passage at length just to give you the spirit of the writing. Okay. He builds to the following passage describing a magnificent creature. Quote, but whilst gazing upon them in a perspective of about half a mile, we were thrilled with astonishment to perceive four successive flocks of large winged creatures, wholly unlike any kind of bird, descend with a slow, even motion from the cliffs of the western side in alight upon the plain." They were first noted by Dr. Herschel, who exclaimed, Now, gentlemen, my theories against your proofs, which you have often found a pretty even bet, we have here something worth looking at. I was confident that if we ever found beings in human shape, it would be in this longitude, and that they would be provided by their creator with some extraordinary powers of locomotion." This lens, being soon introduced, gave us a fine half-mile distance, and we counted three parties of these creatures of twelve, nine, and fifteen in each, walking towards a small wood near the base of the eastern precipices. Certainly, they were like human beings, for their wings had now disappeared, and their attitude in walking was both erect and dignified." The averaged four feet in height were covered, except on the face, with short and glossy copper-colored hair, and had wings composed of a thin membrane without hair, lying snugly upon their backs, from the top of their shoulders to the calves of their legs.' In general symmetry of body and limbs, they were infinitely superior to the orangutan. So much so that, but for their long wings, Lieutenant Drummer said, they would look as well on a parade ground as some of the old Cockney militia, unquote. <laughs> So, so these, were, these were some kind of human creature. Humanoid-like creatures, right. It, they, but with wings. They, yes, they came to be called the Verspertiliohom. hom Pardon? Or, or or what I believe we're going to call it for the rest of the show, the Man-Bat. Batman. No, Man-Bats. These were Man-Bats. Man-Bats. Not, not, not Batman, who I think is a, a great deal wealthier than the Man-Bats. And, and probably a bit ha- more handsome, too. <laughs> a bit more handsome. Finally, Sir Herschel found ruins of an abandoned temple made of sapphire, with a sculpture on top that looked like a crown of flames, so, and around here were even more humanoid creatures that looked a little bit more like the ones on Earth, the ones that were observing them through the telescope. Oh my
2: God, this is crazy. <laughs> and and all of this was published like as scientific fact yeah. in the
1: newspaper? On the front page of the New York Sun in 1935. This ends the scientific portion of this show. For those front pages, nothing on them was not... In any way, true. These were the fabrications of the most hallucinogenic sort. But how could they even? How could they run this?
2: How did the publishers get away with it? And how, what you know? What were readers thinking? Clearly,
1: people were not going to believe this. No, no. Well, a big thing happened between the events of your story and this yeah. story, and that is the birth and the development. Uh, around 1833, or the early 1830s, of the Penny Press.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And I think we've talked about this in other shows, right? And Mm -hmm. there was suddenly this... New newspapers were being introduced that were much less costly because mm-hmm. the old papers cost sometimes a nickel. But these were truly being sold for two pennies and sometimes a penny.
1: Yeah, like it's like incredibly cheap to produce and, of course, easy to just pick up on the street. But fiercely competitive with each other. With each other, right. Now, as you had mentioned earlier in the show, that the newspapers had been more expensive. They were, of course, sold at a premium to right. men of wealth. And, of course, these newspapers... Were business oriented, and the news of the world was often presented in the back pages, certainly not on the front page, which would have been business notices. But with improvements in print technologies in the late 1820s, newspapers could be printed cheaply and in mass, on top of the fact that the city was really beginning to grow, so now right. you had an audience of people to buy them. Well, the only way they could make money is to sell more papers. And in order to sell more papers, the papers needed to have content that was a lot more eye-catching.
2: And then, of course, if they were selling more papers, they could charge more to their advertisers.
1: Right. So they could always keep it at a penny, but they just needed to get more money from the advertisers and then, of course, make those stories within the newspaper a lot more juicy. So you had this young news force out in the city with, you know, and there were no rules and regulations about age. So you had young newsies on all the corners hawking all of these newspapers.
2: And we have a great show on the Mm -hmm. Newsboy
1: Strike if you want to hear much more about this. Now, so just within a few years, New York had an addictive new habit. Now, maybe I'm just transposing a little bit too much here, but you can almost see the debut of the Penny Press analogous with something like Facebook or Twitter Mm -hmm. today, where it was something that... That people felt a desire they needed to keep checking in on at a regular basis, and they, that didn't exist just a few years before. They were addicted. They were addicted. So in 1833 came one of the major players of the Penny Press, and that's the New York Sun, founded by a publisher from Massachusetts named Benjamin Day.
2: The New York Sun? Didn't we just talk about the New York Sun in our last
1: show? <laughs> like, yeah. pneumatic Marvel? Yeah, I mean, just talked about it because Day would eventually sell the newspaper to Moses Beach, who was the father of Alfred Eli Beach, the creator of the pneumatic tube, because it's just who you know in this world, right? <laughs> just a small <laughs> handful of characters. And
2: Beach would kind of, you know, he'd, he'd learn the trade, mm-hmm. um, for, you know, working at the Sun.
1: Well, the New York Sun had steep competition, most notably with the New York Herald, founded by James Gordon Bennett, and the New York Tribune, founded by Horace Greeley, two men and new- two newspapers that we've mentioned quite frequently in past shows. But Day's son, his New York son here, was a little bit more of a scandal sheet. It was a little bit more raw and untamed than the other papers. Its most popular section was the police reporting, the court reporting of various murders and crimes throughout the city. It proved to be the main selling point for most of its existence.
2: And in the 1830s, there was more and more vice to be
1: Mm -hmm. be reported upon. And because these trials would last for months, you'd have to go get your newspaper every day to see what the latest... A scandalous thing that's happening in the courts, right? like a soap opera. Well, Day actually reached for his star reporter, or or actually his editor, Richard Adams Locke, who was a philosopher and journalist who enjoyed his liquor. Um, He often read scientific journals while in the enjoyment of said liquor. But a very intelligent man, of course, who would have enjoyed actually lampooning a lot of the poppycock discoveries of the day. So from these quote-unquote thinkers of the day, I mean, there was a lot of hodgepodge of untruths that were being published at this time that people believed outright. It wasn't all just a bunch of hooey. No, but a lot of it was, and a lot of it would sometimes quickly be revealed as such. Well, so Locke is the purported author of New York Sun moon articles. Wait, the, I,
2: thought, I thought that you said that it was the Scottish astronomer.
1: Yeah. So Locke is indeed the author of these purported articles, which ran from August 25th to August 31st, 1835. No way, and this is kind of unusual, was it presented as an actual farce? And it's not even clear if they expected people to read it as speculation or to read it as amusement or to understand it as fact. It seems like most of the readers were confused too, but mostly, most of all, they were quite captivated by this.
2: Wait, I'm a little confused here. By this point, couldn't people kind of look
1: into this? Yeah, well, so just to give this story some credence, and I think this is the most gutsiest part of this whole thing, uh, Sir John Herschel was an actual person. In fact, he was the best known astronomer living on the Earth. I mean, he was a well-known individual. And he was the discoverer in question. (laughs) Right. But Locke had made all that up. But it was a real person. It was almost as if I wrote a story and said, like today, and Uh said that Neil deGrasse Tyson had proclaimed that he had discovered pancakes on Mars. I mean, can you imagine a prominent
2: person today just saying a complete falsehood and, and getting away with it?
1: But Andrew Grant, so the, the person who was transcribing the article, so you actually, when you read it, you were reading it from his words. Well, he was fake. So that okay. was that. So there was, there was a fake person in this story.
2: But surely somebody just approached Sir John to ask him to explain what he had found.
1: Well, now I don't know if Locke knew this or not, but S- Sir John Herschel was at this time doing research down in Cape Town. South Africa. So, you know, given that this is 1835, he couldn't really really ring him up, though there are some funny quotes later when he would be confronted with all of this. I mean, Uh he was bemused and annoyed by it, but there was not really anything he could do by this time because these articles, they created such a hysteria, as you can imagine, and they ended up getting picked up by newspapers across the country and even around the world. So Uh, people were uh, quoting this story. Story. Yeah, I mean, but imagine we, of course, we shouldn't be applauding like absolute trickery and falsehood, mm-hmm. but I mean, at the but same, let's do it. But I mean, imagine being a child whose father comes home with the newspaper and he sits there and he reads you stories of man bats and bisons on the moon. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of like a magical thing that you want your newspapers to tell you. It could
2: also plausibly rattle your faith a little bit. Yeah. You know, and your religion.
1: True. You could wonder what this is all about. Well, the sun don't didn't care about that. They just wanted to sell newspapers, right? And so the sun actually proclaimed their success in articles in their own newspaper saying how many how, saying how the circulation of the paper had increased because of the moon hoax. Oh my
2: god. So b- even bragging about it.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, this sets a rather disturbing new bar in uh, New York journalism, at least. And that's the, the idea that facts are not immediately determined to be crucial to an actual news article. So, this concept continues to be de- developed into the later 19th century here with the advent of yellow journalism and the idea of how much can you sell to an audience and get them to pick up this newspaper and then either apologize later or, in the case of The Sun, just refuse to deny it, perhaps more on a positive note, due to the pervasiveness of penny press newspapers. This is really one of the first examples of what I would call water cooler stories. The idea that this is something that everyone in New York. Was talking about the young and the old, the rich, the poor. Um, you know, murder trials had filled this void before, but now here was something that was well—it was celestial. Right. You know, ministers talked about man bats from the pulpit. You know, people were drinking themselves to oblivion in taverns, talking about the bison and talking yeah. about all the trees.
2: Not sure about the
1: nineteenth-century water coolers. Maybe the, um, <laughs> maybe the wells. The wells. Oh yeah, the it was it was well chat right so there's three final points that I, I want to finally make and then we'll say farewell to the beaver and the bison uh, there was a journal in Virginia named the Southern Literary Messenger which had attempted a similar ruse upon its readers transcribing an all true story about a man who built a balloon and sailed it to the moon and of course there had all kinds of amazing adventures and it was also printed in a similar fashion as this did, did the readers believe it Hookline and sink no, no, not at all. But the author of this particular story saw so many parallels in the Sun story and what uh-huh. Locke had done that he became outraged and later accused the paper of plagiarism. Because this was running just before the Sun story. Yeah. So you can imagine if you were yeah. the, the, this writer. This writer, by the way, his name was Edgar Allan Poe. Wow.
2: And he, he doesn't like to be quoth. <laughs> no. Oh, with, no. Without attribution.
1: <laughs> quoth. Quoth. Quoth Tom, um, "Now, what made the Sun's reputation? Nevermore." <laughs> now, while this made the Sun's reputation in many good ways, it also did so in bad. Other newspapers mocked the Sun for these absurd fabrications, and the more respectable newspapers did mm-hmm. so and used the language of the moon hoax very casually in articles to poke fun. At the Sun. So, this is my favorite discovery of the week, Tom, from the New York Herald in 1836, one year after the Sun article. The headline A Mystery. The Sun, for several days, has been talking mysteriously of something very curious at the Bowery and Franklin Theater. On making inquiry at the proper quarter, We find that this curiosity, this mystery, is nothing but a man-bat who has occasionally made his appearance in the lobby and punch room of both establishments, to the great amusement of every person frequenting these places. He has a peculiar appetite for pouring watery liquids down his throat, then talking love- to the old ladies, and sometimes alleging that he is the editor of The Sun. Uh. His mode of sleeping is also peculiar. The real verspertilio homo sleep, with his head on one side hanging over his chair, his arms dangling down, and the pretty barmaid looking quite funny at him. We trust our worthy, indicted, contemporary of The Sun will cage the man-bat in the future and prevent his personating him hereafter. He might be exhibited, (laughs) <laughs> <unquote>. Whoa, that,
2: <laughs> that is shade. shade. <laughs> <laughs> that is shade, eighteen thirty six style. <laughs> that is the shadiest thing. The library is, so is is cl- open. <laughs> that was a total smack in mm. the face of the sun, directed directly at
1: its editor. Finally, because you had mentioned Orson Welles earlier, I think that there's actually a lot of interesting parallels between this story Mm -hmm. and then what happened in 1938, which is Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater of the Air broadcasting the story War of the Worlds at a CBS studio in 1938. And of course, there was a huge hysteria about that too because people didn't understand whether that was real or fake.
2: And I feel like that would make a great subject for a follow-up show on (laughs) hoaxes because we have we have wells but we also have the world of PT
1: Barnum and his hoaxes. Let well, I me mean, yeah. We've only just started to saw into these rich stories of New York's hoax history. You
2: can join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for illustrations, more about these articles from The Sun, although, of course, there won't be any um, articles from
1: my story. No, that is true. I want to say really quickly, I want to give a shout out really quickly to a wonderful book. It's one of my favorites by Matthew Goodman called The Sun and the Moon, which is about the whole early years of the Penny Press and, of course, this unusual story in particular.
2: And for more on my story, again, I'd recommend Joel Rose's 2001 book, New York Sawed in Half for more on that story and really just what New York was like in the early 1820s.
1: And hey, if you're picking up those books, why don't you pick up our book? <laughs> nice segue. The Adventures in Old New York is now out on shelves. We'll be appearing throughout New York City in promotion of the book. We can't wait to hear your reactions. Uh, it seems to be going so good. So far, so good. If you're in North America and you head into a bookstore
2: and you see our book, Tweet a photo of it over to us. We would love to see it. We're getting lots of fun tweets from all over the country. And it's really exciting for us to see that this book Mm -hmm. is really out there. You know, know, it's something that you live with for so
1: long on your laptop. And then all of a sudden, There it is. It's unbelievable. We want to thank you for your support. And in particular, we also want to thank our patrons um, who, through Patreon.com, are able to support us so that we can produce a new show every two weeks. So if you'd like to join in on that, just go to Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, and there'll be a lot of exclusive features on there for our patrons as well.
2: So thanks so much for joining
1: us for our first two great hoaxes of old New York. Well, these two old man bats have got to fly out of here. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.